welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe and leave us a review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen. And if you're interested in some insider perks, you can pitch in a few dollars a month at patreon.com forward slash cleantechnica. That's patreon.com forward slash cleantechnica. Some news from our company first. We're going to be raising a round of investment early in 2022. If you're interested in being in the know, you can sign up to be contacted at cleantechnica.com backslash invest backslash. You'll get financials, a pitch deck, and our founder and former CEO will personally be reaching out to you to ask you about your hopes for both Clean Technica and the investment money. We want to tailor our investment vehicle appropriately. Again, that's cleantechnica.com backslash invest backslash. Today I'm talking to the CEO of Drone Seed, Grant Canary. He's been educated in LA, tour in Italy, and Colombia, and he's got this obsession with wings, having spent time in Festus with wind turbines, in insect startups, and now UAVs. And he also has read and tweeted about one of my favorite books, The Water Knife, so we'll probably talk about that too. Okay, so how did you get to the point where you've got an eight-foot diameter like what is it? Six six props or or eight props? Like I I I, I didn't count the number of props. On, on we go with device. the hex, so six. Yep. And yeah, we here, here's the here's the process. So over number of years, uh, what we developed was is is basically an aircraft. We fly them in swarms, uh, so groups of up to five. They are controlled by a single pilot and a computer operator, and they carry that fifty-seven pound payload of seed vessels. And we actually call them pucks. They're about the size of a hockey puck. They have a couple seeds each. The seeds are embedded in the puck. And what that does is it actually functions like a nanosite. I've used the, the term microsite here, meaning a good place to grow a tree. Example for, for tree planters out there that know this is like next to a stump. It provides a bit of a windbreak that helps avoid drying out. It, uh, it can give a little shade during certain parts of the day. So those are, that's an example of a, mac, of a microsite. This would be much more of a nanosite, the size of a hockey puck, not a, not a couple square feet or anything along those lines. So by dropping those, we're able to get them out onto the landscape. Now, before we drop them, what we do is that we do a first pass with LIDAR and multispectral imaging. Ah, I, I did have that, that question. <laughs> yes, we, we got lasers involved. So we, uh, we basically go out there, the LIDAR takes 800,000 points a second, and it builds a whole 3D terrain map of the environment and the hills, I, the landscape. I assume you're using the new solid state LIDARs as opposed to the old rotating mirror ones, right? No, no comments there. I'll <laughs> leave the, 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 te- the tech, uh, the tech tool chain. We, uh, we keep out of uh, all of our, our communications, mostly just to preserve our processes. Uh, if it's any, cons- part of the reason I asked is I actually published on uh, LIDAR sensors um, for autonomous vehicles five years ago. And, and some of the collateral I produced was used in conferences in Korea by sensor people. So I spent more time looking at sensors in any reasonable person should who's not directly engaged in the industry, but good enough. And and a buddy of mine, he runs uh, GeoSim Cities. They actually do LIDAR 
a three-dimensional mapping at five centimeter resolution of cities and city scale infrastructure like airports. So, you know, $500,000 $500, LIDAR kits that he flies over with elevators and pulls and carts through stuff. So a little closer to the tech than the average person you talk to. But I'll li- I, I will respect your, your request for reticence on what, exactly what you use. <laughs> yes, I, I appreciate it there. And yeah, but it is incredibly useful for us to be able to build that terrain map for, for two simple reasons. Number one, we can avoid sending the drones into a tree. Yep. Two inch diameter tree branches can snag our drones and pull them right out of the air. And that is not fun. And then the other reason we do that is because we can, we can for, for everyone in the tech sector, hopefully, hopefully give me a kudos in social media. We do not use machine learning or AI yet. What we do is we manually remove all of the areas that are places we don't think a tree will grow well. And we do that at about a third of an acre scale. So we take, we basically say, hey, this area, there's a whole bunch of existing blackberries or other invasive species that are out there. And so like, it makes no sense to drop a whole bunch of seed vessels into that because it's not going to grow. And same thing with roads and other things that are very simple features, but we're, uh, you know, super rocky soils, places where it's like, this is, it's just not going to go well for these seeds. And that, again, reduces the consumption of seed. Seed is that scarce resource because of the situation we find ourselves with climate change and wildfires being massively fueled in that way. And it's also why we bought our 30-year-old seed company, which we'll we'll get to in a second here. Oh, we will, for um, sure. (laughs) So yeah, so in this process, what we're up to is, uh, yeah, do that first pass, come back a week or two later. And then we're, it's game time. We've got five aircraft and the crew that are out there and they're operating the aircraft, reloading the batteries, getting these things back up in the air quickly, like a NASCAR pit crew and basically dropping those across the landscape. And those are all pre-charted paths on where they should go based off of the initial survey of where's the good land, where, you know, in some cases we may choose to do microsite targeting and put a whole bunch of seed vessels in a particular area around specific features. So that's a little bit about the technology there. And, and then it's come back and under. And um, for carbon credit projects, that is a mandated requirement. And that is the, the, the financial flywheel behind reforestation is some of the new carbon credit systems being put out by Climate Action Reserve, CAR, VERA, Gold Standard, and others. They're, they're functioning a lot like my prior employer, U.S. Green Building Council, of being kind of a uh, third-party standards organization that other people follow. And they, they follow them, they get, the, uh, they get the big gold seal on the building, or they, and in this case, they get the carbon credits because third parties come out to monitor, say, yep, there's a, it's a year later, it's gone through a dry season, there's uh, these species of trees out here, and they're, they're all alive, and they're in the right density and quantity, so follow the sampling method, you can issue the credits on, on Climate Action Reserves Exchange. Do you actually, um, you know, so you've got the third parties, which is you know important. I've talked to people like Mark Trexler, who has had a global career dealing with you know uh, appropriate use of carbon credits, especially for biological systems. He's down in Portland, where you spend a bunch of time. You might even know Mark. I don't know. But do you actually go back yourself a year later and do you know, run the lidar and multispectral across again to see the progress, or do you just leave that to third parties? We go back ourselves because that's incredibly valuable data for us is to see how things are performing see what different things that we've added, reduce the predation or the desiccation, the drying out. 
And so that's, and that figure out what that targeting looks like and how that's performing. So it's incredible for us, but it's something that from a trust perspective, you know, full respect to climate action reserve, that's absolutely how it should be done as a registered professional forester for California projects goes out, they're accredited or approved by CAR to do, to be that third party. It can't just be anybody. And they're following sampling methods that we've used since the 1920s on how do you how do you measure trees? How do you how do you pick out the diameter breast height? How do you how do you focus on that? Obviously, in you know one year you're not getting to that, but for anybody who's measured things in chains and uh, has done fixed radius plots, it's a, a lot of that type of methodology to do random sampling and figure out the quantity of trees and uh, densities and, uh, and the right sort of, uh, you know, is the peanut butter spread across uh, across the whole landscape or is it, uh, you know, because is it clumpy? Yeah. yeah. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking to the uh, CEO of Pivot Bio. I'm not sure you're aware of them. They, they doing very interesting stuff in a precision agriculture in a different way. I'll just make a couple of comparisons to what you're doing versus what they're doing that I think are pertinent. One is they're you know strongly focused on precision agriculture. They do uh, nitrogen fixing and microbe supplements for soil that displace agriculture for agricultural crops. And the way they do that is it's either you know, the, the seed goes in and a little spray of their stuff goes in in a precision-oriented way just at the seed, and then the microbes grow with the plant, or the seeds are tumbled in the microbes and then they're planted in a precision agriculture way and the microbes go with the seeds. So, you know, once again, though, that's that's all in aid of, you know, a precision agriculture model where GPS is guiding machinery and putting down exactly the right amounts of nutrients and fertilizers and herbicides in exactly the right place. And you're doing that for tree planting on often steep slopes where you can't actually it's actually in many cases difficult to walk. And so that's a really interesting extension of precision agriculture for tree planting. And, and this, I think the one of the most interesting things you've done is this proprietary seed vessel, you know, the puck with a couple of seeds in it. Um, it looked to, you know, the pictures I saw of it looked like a, a moss substrate, but it's you know probably something else. I'm not sure how much you can say about it, but it, it's really interesting to me because it does, to your point, and I'll say this for our audience's sake, I'll paraphrase what you're saying. It provides a microbiome for the seeds to survive, to have attract moisture because it's a, a substance which sucks up moisture from the ground and from the air and shelters them from wind and shelters them to a certain extent from predators. You know, I think you used the great term, a great big squirrel buffet earlier, and it enables them to have the conditions necessary to turn into those nano machines that I talked about earlier that throw solar panels up and seeds down. And, and this is probably the time to talk about, you know, the proprietary seed vessel, one thing, but then silva seed acquisition. That's a big deal because that's the fundamental thing you're saying is how do you get the seeds? So why don't you lead into the silva seed uh, story? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so the you, you've completely accurately summarized the seed vessel and innate to that is the seed. And as, as mentioned, there's a, there's a you know paper that was really put the numbers out there as far as we're in trouble on seed and we're in trouble on nursery capacity. This is the Frontiers Challenges the Reforestation Pipeline paper. And it had, I, I can't remember off the top of my head if it was like 16 or 20 authors, but these are folks coming from the Nature Conservancy, the Forest Service, state universities across the country, American forests, et cetera, put it on the blog as well, which was they called 100% of federal nurseries 
I believe it was 60% of state nurseries and 45% of private nurseries, if I've got my numbers correct off the top of my head. And that should tell you one thing right there, which is that like, it shouldn't be possible to call 45% of private nurseries. That should be, that, that should require, that should require years and it doesn't. And so that tells you number one, that there's not enough nurseries. And then number two, their conclusions were, we need to six X the, the seed collection. And that was then picked up by Wired and picked up by Fast Company and others. And so you can read that, you know, if you want the numbers, you want the data, get it in the scientific paper. If you want to sort of give it to me in the narrative and uh, entertaining form, check out, check out Wired and Fast Company. But really the focus there is, and the message is, we're short on seed. And so to be able to have the, have the nice biological robot that throws up the solar panels, the, the, the situation we find ourselves in a macro is that we have a supply chain that was built with orchards and seed coming from orchards that were bred over long periods of time to grow fast and straight for timber. And it's, it's designed to intervene maybe in 9% of fires, meaning that we can, we can put out, we could grow some seeds in a nursery and then put them out on site because 91% of the time, depending on the ecosystem, nature was doing natural regeneration. Forest burns, forest regrows, that's high school bio. We're now seeing with climate change, that was with low severity fires. Now we have moderate to high severity fires. And so we're unlike, you know, here's the no why of why we're now seeing as in many, in some ecosystems, 60% of the time nature's naturally regenerating rate or 40% of the time is a low severity fire goes through and it kind of burns the soil like a creme brulee. There's that little ash cap. And then there's like all the yellow gooey stuff that's happy underneath. And that's where the seeds are in the soil. Well, high severity fire goes through, it's like torching the whole creme brulee. And so that's where the seeds are in the soil. The other place the seeds are, are it, for conifers is the crowns of the trees, the tops of the trees. So low severity fires that go through and they burn all the bushy stuff because it transfers from tree to tree. And the tops of the trees are, you know, green and the tree survives. Monitor to high severity, you know, hopefully, monitor to high severity fire, what you see is it goes all the way up to the top of the tree and burns the whole tree. And it looks like a Looney Tunes tree hit by lightning for, for those of you that that's still a relevant reference. But basically like that, that cone is you know, incinerated and that tree uh, has, no, has no leafy biomass left. And a lot of, you know, if it burns the bark in a really significant way, that tree is not gonna live. And so, yeah, okay, if that was moderate, you know, we have moderate to high severity fires in the past, but not across like 4 million acres, like the August complex fire. That is a long distance for seed rain to carry from areas that weren't affected by fire, et cetera. And so there's just not seed in the, in the soil or in the crowns. And so nature is regenerating less and less and nature doesn't really do a vacuum. So if we're lucky, uh, we have native species come in. And if we're unlucky, we have invasives. So Himalayan blackberries, Scotch broom, which is this, like yellow flower that you see on highway meridians, that is an invasive and it is not adapted to the local ecosystem. So it will dry out faster. Those plants that are native, they know summer's coming, they'll hold moisture longer to survive. That's their evolutionary strategy. Whereas invasives, it's, it's spray and pray and uh, put the seed everywhere, what lives, lives. And so that stuff dries out and it burns and reburns and then can actually catch the, the parts of forest that weren't impacted on fire as well. So that's why we can see continual reburns. And in the meantime, we've had a huge gigaton dump of carbon emissions due to a burned forest. So there's some great information on Manga Bay about what the, what the carbon emissions were from fires in 2020. And so we'll similarly be tallying up. So our focus is how do we reforest 
faster each and every year. And with the acquisition of Silvaseed, what we're able to do with land managers that are affected by fire is to plug them into anywhere into a vertically integrated suite of services that we can now offer. We were drones operating in difficult terrain after a fire. Now we are able to say, look, with Silvaseed, we collect the seed. We're the largest private seed bank on the West Coast, potentially in the North America. And we are able to then you know, clean it, we take the cones, we break them apart, and then we're able to put it into the seed vessels and get out to site rapidly within 90 days, which has not been possible previously for land managers impacted by fire. Or we can grow seedlings. And seed grows millions of seedlings a year. We are doubling that capacity, in both the seeds and the seedlings. And we are focusing on how we expand, how do we do more human intervention? And then the last part is there's the capital. So where does the money come in for reforestation? Reforestation has previously been like an oil change. It's, it's a compliance thing that people do and they don't want to pay a ton for it, but they don't want their car to stop running. So they pay for it, but they don't want to pay a ton. And they're not bragging at cocktail parties about the deluxe oil change they got. Now, if they didn't put oil in their car for four years, they sure aren't bragging. You know, that's, that's a cocktail story. But the, it is a compliance cost that hasn't received a ton of investment. So carbon credits, a new method of carbon credits, this is not putting easements on existing stands of trees. This is putting easements on burned acreage and reforesting it and getting credits for that with a legal lien on the property where it's a perpetual easement and the rights to log it are locked up and the key is thrown away. That is a way in which we are able to create a financial flywheel behind the reforestation model. And so by the, with the acquisition of Silverseed, we, we now are one of the largest seed banks on the West Coast and potentially in North America. That is a big deal. And land managers who are impacted by fire Previously, what was the system? Well, if you had seed, which most didn't, went to you, you had to find funding uh, unless you had that. And uh, that usually took you a year, going around different seed banks, going to Cal Fire, going to others. And then you got it and you send it to the nursery. The nursery then grows it for a year. Then if you got the, the window right, you get it, uh, you transport it out in a refrigerated truck, goes to subcontracted labor who then do the wind sprints up and down the mountains burning the caloric equivalent of running two marathons every day. I had the white papers from, from some kind of Canadians who, who strapped on the, uh, the sort of heart rate monitor on the chest and, and measured it. And that is literally what they burn in calories planting trees. So this is a calorically intensive activity. Hey, and, that and is a really long supply chain. And you're replacing them with drones, which use electricity, which can come from renewable energy and doesn't consume massive amounts of crappy food. <laughs> yes, and giving them better tools. I wouldn't use the word replacing. It's very similar to farming, right? Like we still have farmers. We don't plow fields with draft animals anymore. We are focused on how do we do more efficient work each and every year with better and better tools. And so our focus is how do we turn a, what is a largely manual job into a tech job and specifically for the frontline communities impacted by climate change. And that is something where collecting cones and paying for them by the bushel or by the burlap sack 
that's an activity for frontline communities affected by climate change. Uh, it's, Absolutely. It's a I, that's, that's, that one's a hard target <laughs> for using drones to collect cones. That is a Maybe. very hard target, although that's not, it's not being worked on, I know. Um, not by us, but by others. And so that is something where that, that cone collection is, is tough. Yeah, I've, I've had um, odd, another part of my odd background is that I was actually uh, in the process of designing uh, swarm-based robotic systems in around 2001, long before we had the energy density and the batteries to do that, to do what we were envis envisaging with our, you know, component-based stuff. But, you know, so I've looked at the algorithms and stuff, some of which you're possibly using in some of your stuff, but my knowledge is stale. So yeah, it, force leverage with automation for more highly skilled workforces is a big bonus. And there are some problems that are just tough. Um, before we, we've only got about eight minutes left. And I do want to talk about mm -hmm. this thing that you've got, which is unusual. So for people who haven't been following unmanned aerial vehicles in the United States, the U.S. Federal Aviation Association or whatever administration, I think it is FAA, is actually one of the most stringent regulatory bodies on what we think of as drones in the world. They really keep a tight eye on it. The um, unmanned area vehicles are basically treated like radio controlled things. You have to have line of sight. You have to, can't fly them in a lot of places. They have to be under 400 feet altitude and a bunch of other stuff. And you couldn't get permission to use them for commercial purposes for a long time. And I'm not sure, I know they're being used for commercial purposes all over the place. But you guys have actually got an FAA waiver to use heavy lift drone swarms. So is that differentiated from approvals for other drone usage or is it the drone swarm usage? Explain that process because this is a big deal. Getting approval from the FAA for flights and dealing with all that stuff. I used to be a paraglider and you know I, I dealt with all the airspace restrictions and paraglided the Southern Cliffs of Valley a couple of times, peak experience. But it's actually tough to do this. So, so talk a bit about that. Yeah. So it's, it's uh, taken us quite a bit of time to get it, but we're the first and only that's FAA approved to operate utilizing heavy lift aircraft, which means the all up weight of the aircraft with its payload of 60 pounds of sea vessels is about 112 pounds. And that's that eight foot diameter with big old rotors operating. And so that's the heavy lift side. And then operating up to five at a time, with a single pilot and a computer operator, ground control station operator. That is, uh, that is our, our method there. So that is the swarm part of it. So heavy lift, swarm, and then beyond visual line of sight. And being able to, visual line of sight means that, you know, you can see the aircraft. We got approval to be able to see the airspace that the aircraft is operating. So if it goes around a hill, it goes around an obstacle, something along those lines, we can't see the aircraft. We are still uh, uh, FAA approved as long as we can see the airspace in which we're operating. And that is entirely reasonable because we operate below 400 feet and that's a specific type of airspace. And that there really shouldn't be planes and helicopters operating below 400 feet. So that makes a ton of sense. So well, the, I, I have um, to say, speaking as someone who has paraglided in um, not too far from where Antero's head offices are, I was firmling up at one point. And I looked across and I saw a single engine replica World War I fighter buzzing by me at about 400 feet away. And once in ballet, I looked down on a helicopter, which was a really, really terrifying experience. Um, so yes. you, I'm just going to say, don't be surprised what pilots do. <laughs> but, yes. 
Well, it's uh, fair enough. And and this is why the FAA is as stringent as it is. They hate what they call the blue sky theory, which is ah, the airspace is so big. What's the chance of people are going to crash? And the FAA was founded when too many tourist air, airplanes were flying above the Grand Canyon. And eventually one of them hit each other. And so, yeah, you're up in you're up in the paraglider. You see a helicopter below. All of a sudden you hit a uh, you, you hit a, a thermal that's a cold thermal and you go down real fast. Well, you're headed into, you're headed into a food processor. And so, yeah, I could see that being terrifying. So from, from our perspective, what we do is we file notice to airmen or notums um, yep. in the areas that we're flying. If there is any helicopters that are operating nearby, because this is uh, in many cases, these are commercial forests or tree farms. And so there are other air operations, but given the NOTAM, given that we have the ability to communicate via radio, we operate in a very safe manner. And safety is the number one thing for uh, anybody with forests, both fire safety, aviation safety, et cetera. And so that is our, that is our focus. And getting those approvals was incredibly difficult, but the FAA, I mean, let's just put it this way. When we did our, uh, we, we proposed it usually took a couple of trips out to DC where there's 26 people on a call. And some of it was curiosity about what we were up to. Some of it was people wanting to make sure that part of the airspace that they were responsible for was represented, whether that was, you know, I won't get into details there, but basically, and then we did our uh, flight inspections with the flight standard district office, there's FISDO. There was not one, but six inspectors that came out as they were doing training for how do they how do they regulate and how do they work with drone operators? And so, yeah, we went through the ringer and each one of those approvals was a separate process and then worked together. So that is, uh, as a result of that, we are now FAA approved. We're the first and only for every state west of Colorado, uh, including Alaska and Hawaii. So we have some projects in, in Hawaii that are early days, looking to expand those and then operating in Oregon, Washington, Idaho, California, and British Columbia today. We'll be expanding. You know, as we grow, we'll be expanding. Uh, and to, to really put this in context, a 120-pound drone, let's compare that to a Canada goose. A Canada goose can destroy a jet engine and knock a jet out of the sky or hole the uh, jet window. <laughs> and it weighs a tiny fraction of what a 120-pound chunk of you know, plastics and blades and metals and ceramics in the air does. So it's very important, the, the safety stuff that you've been doing. Last point, I'm gonna, gonna leave it to you. You've got the percentage reforestation costs. So uh, I'd like you to close with two thoughts. How much money do you save? And then you've got an audience that crosses North America and around the world, it's about 50% United States, 50% non-USA. And it's just the open-ended opportunity for you to say whatever you want to say to that audience. So costs, open-ended. Absolutely. Well, so on the savings, I mean, it's always a, it depends because of the like local, the, the local ecosystem. But where we focus on is creating a project model that works to landowner objectives, selecting appropriate species, and then saving money by getting in there before the weeds get up within 90 days. And that's not been possible because previously it's been a three-year supply chain and you weren't, you know, the Paradise Fire wasn't getting started on reforesting in many cases until it burned in 2018. And they're looking at starting on it in 2020. And so we're now able to be out there in 90 days and we can do that because we're utilizing seed in those vessels and we can get up there before the weeds, which saves people a lot on getting rid of those weeds. 
And so that is something that for land managers that are affected by fire is a, is a really important aspect of our approach. It's a cost savings aspects. And then for the carbon credit side, that's where the financial flywheel kicks in. And instead of waiting 20 to 40 years to get a return on investment from, from timber, we can do that in two and we can do it at a much greater return. So I guess if, I, if, I, if I'm to use uh, if I'm to use sort of like on the, for the customer side, I would say very much like if you're affected by fire, if you know folks that are, give us, you know, look us up on the website, come talk to us. And if, if there is a small two acres or whatnot, what we do is we refer people to registered professional forest. They group people and then place an order so that they can either, you know, get one of our four vertically integrated services, seeds, seedlings, aerial enhanced seeding, or carbon credit reforestation, or all four of those, which is really the, the whole purpose of the acquisition. And then as a general statement, I, you know, I guess the thing that I will, I will uh, say to the entirety of, of North America and across the globe is the, is, is the focus on getting people to transition their, their, their work days, getting people to transition their votes, getting people to transition their dollars to how do we decarbonize, how do we electrify, how do we mitigate the worst effects of climate change? And you know, if it's with us, great. We've got jobs, we've got openings. If it's with other climate tech companies, we are all interdependent to be able to have the best possible future. And it is nuts to me that we are not investing so much more time, effort, capital, labor into climate tech companies. So I would like to have a bright future. Please get on it. Yeah. And having personally pivoted over the past, you know, decade, I, you know, double, double down on what uh, Grant is saying. And people do reach out to me for, you know, to see how I can help them understand how the heck I did it. And you've heard Grant's story. He started a lot earlier than I did, but yeah, it's a, the major issue facing the 21st century. So let's do it. This has been Clean Tech Talk. Uh, I've been talking to the CEO of Drone Seed, Grant Canary. He's obsessed with things with wings, and his current amazing effort is around using heavy lift swarms of drones to plant trees. Great story. Now, we didn't get to talk about The Water Knife, but we both recommend that people go find the book, The Water Knife, and read it because it's amazing and frightening. Grant, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. Walk, 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 walk,